Hello and welcome to Bombazo, the La Liga podcast with a Scandinavian flavour. My name is Lee Roden. That's my new presenting voice. Uh, I picked it up whilst I've been away for two weeks or whatever it is now. And yeah, we were a little bit later than usual, you might have noticed, but there were a few games that needed to happen before it made sense to do another one. So we have the internationals out of the way. We also have the Nations League draw done, which gives us a little bit of perspective on where one La Liga-based player may be playing his chance to get to the European Championships. And as always, I am joined by Alexandra Jonsson. How are you, my friend? I am good, because I've been enjoying the international break in the best way I know how to enjoy it. It's by watching the Asturian Derby. I cannot lie, having thought about this uh, quite a bit over the last few days, I'm extremely jealous of you. (laughs) You should be, you should be. Yeah, and you can tell us all about I think we're going to dedicate quite a big chunk of the day to that because I think it's a game that doesn't get that much coverage internationally, but really should do. Uh, and you've had the, the luck of being able to experience it firsthand, so we should definitely dive deep on that one. First, we should round up some of the things that have happened, that have already happened with regards to the Scandinavian players in La Liga over the last few days. It's been an international break, which, love it or hate it, means a slightly different change of scene for everyone. The first person I wanted to touch on really briefly is a guy who we've championed a lot on this podcast, but who maybe hasn't had the easiest season because of how things are going at his club side in Spain. Martin Brathwaite, two goals in two games. I mean, that's pretty good by anyone's standards. The second of the goals, the first was in a game that you would expect Denmark to, to win against Gibraltar, but the second one was the goal against Ireland that came late and the game away over in Dublin that essentially was the goal that took Denmark to the Euros or guaranteed they went to the Euros. Really nice finish, getting behind the Irish defence. I've been thinking about Brathwaite like these last few days because of that and also because of how he's having a hard time at Leganes but still getting the odd goal. If you put this guy in a better team, I reckon he would get you maybe close to 20 goals a season. I think he's a very, very good striker at this stage in his career. Yeah, and I think it's it's easy for people to say that if you're a great player, you would do good in, in whatever team you are. But it makes a big, big difference in what teammates you have around you. And as we've been saying, Leganes is probably a team in the Liga this season that is going the worst. Yeah. Um, and we, we were talking about this already before the season, that we were expecting them to have a, a difficult season. Last year, he came in and was one of the most important keys in, in the change for Leganes that made them get away from, from a bad run as well. But I think in, in general, he's showed that he's good enough to play in La Liga and he's good enough to play in a team that is better than Leganes. So I would definitely really like to see what he could do if he had ha- just had better players around him. Yeah, I think you nailed it because, I mean, Leganes are one of the worst teams in Spain this season by a distance. But, you know, the Leganes of last season were a much better team, but still not a good team. And Denmark, I would say, are they're, they're a decent team, but still not, you know, a particularly good team. And he's getting goals with those kind of sides. So you stick him in a side that creates more chances. And honestly, I think this guy would get you a good number of goals every year. So I don't know, but I think if he, he keeps this up, he keeps plugging away because he's playing well, even if he's not always getting goals at Leganes. And I'm pretty sure he'll have the chance to, to stay in Spain. That's the impression I get anyway. I mean, he's too good, too good to, to go down a level, I would think, regardless of what happens to them. Yeah, 100%. Uh, but I would, I would like to... It's, it's obviously difficult in the middle of the season, but I, I wouldn't be against seeing him changing squad already in, in January just to see what, what level he can perform. And especially there's several teams in the Liga where I think he could fit quite well. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, actually, that takes us quite nicely on to someone else who I suspect might be changing squad in January. John Gadetti. 
John Gadetti is still a footballer. John Gadetti. Yeah. When's the last time we heard that, man? Come on. Those heady days at Balaidos, right? Oh, and not just at Balaidos. Like, during those days when he was, in, especially in the start when he was at Salta, wherever you could hear it all over the place. Like, I was in an Airbnb once and heard the neighbor starting playing the song. I was like, come on. And not minor detail, the fact that he, he got a goal. He not only played uh, a little bit, but he also got a goal, came on as a substitute against the Faroe Islands. Okay, not the toughest opposition in the world, but a really good goal nonetheless. A really powerful header that was unstoppable, I would say, by any keeper. And his celebration was what you'd expect. Someone who looks like he's got a lot of built-up energy who needs to get it out. I mean, this is a reminder that there's a good player there, right? I, I think also what was interesting with him score when he scored that goal is the reaction of his teammates of the, yeah. the other Swedish players not just at the game but also on their social media afterwards everyone when they posted a photo from the game they picked one where John Gudetti was in it as well and also like somewhere in their text wrote something about it so I think that shows as well just how important it was for him to get to go score that goal even if it wasn't in the biggest game or a super important goal in any way I think it was very important for him and you're seeing the reactions of everyone else uh, around him who are around him much more than than we are or see him on a daily basis training with him and stuff like that shows yes the how much he has actually needed that goal well actually i think you said something important there because i, I know that at least in glasgow uh because of his time at celtic there's an image of him maybe as being something of a troublemaker but for those of us that have followed his career more closely than that i mean th this guy is a guy who doesn't play but makes no fuss for his teammates is a good guy to have in the dressing room, a positive influence. And the way that those Sweden players reacted shows that, I think. It's a guy that everyone likes in the team. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, well, I, I don't know. I, I get the impression now that he will move on in January unless there's a disaster. It's come One way or another, I mean, I think it's going to be hard to match the transfer evaluation that Alaves want, which is always a bit of a strange situation because you essentially end up potentially holding on to someone who you don't want, like what mm -hmm. happened uh, following the summer. But whether it's a loan or a transfer, I'm sure he'll be elsewhere. I have a feeling it might not be in La Liga. That's the impression I get. Yeah, and he was really close to, to leaving in the summer and wanted to leave, but it was Alaves, or from what I've heard, who basically held him back and, and didn't let him go. And I think that now it's gone six more months, it would be really m mad if the club still, uh, when they're not playing him, uh, would still like refuse to let him go. I think it's, it's better for both the club and... And for, for John as well. Whilst we're on the, the topic of Swedes and La Liga, I, I think we have to talk to some degree about the, the sad story of what happened as part of a much happier, bigger story during Sweden's qualification where they qualified, taking a win away at Romania when Alexander Izak had to tell the referee that he was being racially abused from the some fans in the stadium. I mean, we all know this is horrible and, and I don't think anyone would question that. But one thing that, that stood out to me was when he came out post-match and he said, that the, the referee asked him if he, he wanted him to stop the game again. But Isaac said, no, I, I want to play on so that we can celebrate this win and our qualification on the pitch. This is a young guy, remember, in a really tricky situation. That shows so much mental strength. And I think that says a lot about his quality and his potential to persevere through difficult, difficult moments. And that could be a big deal in the future, right? Yeah, and I think that... Alexander Isak in general, what everything you see from him, he feels it's as we've said about other guard as well. He feels so much more mature than he is for his age. And that might be with both because they came up so young. They made their breakthrough when they were just 16 years old, 15 years old, um, and have been in the spotlight for so long. But they just feel like so very down to earth guys who are just understand the situation they're in which i think many football players in their age or even older than them whatever everything that goes on about you, around you with 
all the privileges you get from from being a football pro it's easy for it to get to your head and i think with both alex and with with martin you can can really notice that they are so down to earth i think they're both surrounded by very very good people who has really good influence on them because of the age they are at and the success that they've had at that age normally you see those players just fly away um and and become bigger stars than they actually are. But these are two guys that just feels in the way they play football, in the way they handle these kind of situations, they, they're just showing time after time how mature they are. And when you when you talk to them, when you interview them, um, you also get that feeling that you're you're talking to someone who's very intelligent, who who knows what, what is going on and and isn't like over his head in, in any way. And I think that is very strong characteristics to have, especially if you're going to make it the in the long term yeah absolutely on the the subject of Erdegaard we'll come back to his club situation later but I wanted to throw a curveball at you this wasn't in the running order but that's the kind of guy I am the the Nations League league, I guess they're calling it a playoff I don't know what name they have for it draw was made and so it turns out that Erdegaard's Norway will face Serbia then one of either Israel or Scotland my instinctive reaction to this was that I think there's a very very good chance we will be seeing Martin Erdegaard at the European Championships next summer if I'm saying that I hope that's the case, I have two people, one Scottish and one Serbian, who would be really angry at me. Um, I kind of said it to them earlier today, but uh, they thought it was a joke. No, but I think <laughs> think, yeah, I think it's, a, it's a good chance. And and also the fact that, that Norway have out of guard, we have seen what he's done to, to Real Sociedad. And even though he's he obviously has better players around him at Real Sociedad, and there's very talented players there, uh, it is a guy who is very good at making his teammates perform on a very high level. So I think that the fact that Norway have Odegaard in their team uh, raises their chances a bit more higher than the other teams, I would say, in that playoff or, or what we call it. Uh, as someone of a Scottish origin, the prospect of Martin Odegaard linking up with Haaland and tearing our defence apart should we get past Israel, and that's a big but, absolutely terrifies me because, honestly, I think they could fill their boots. I think there's a, if, if Scotland get get through and Norway are the team they face, I, I don't think we have a chance in hell in Oslo. But I'm happy to be proven wrong. We'll see. As a, as a Swede, I should hope should probably not hope for Norway to go through because you know there's the the Scandi rivalry. But uh, but I mean, it's always nice to have the little brother there and they can see and learn from us, us big ones how you do it at a big tournament. I should probably not be saying that because knowing what Sweden can do, uh, it might bite me in the ass. But yeah. There we go. Unfortunately for you, continuity reasons mean I can't edit that out. So if you are Norwegian uh, and you want to complain about that, then tweet us at Bombathopod. So we'll move on to, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of small pieces of business to deal with on the international front. Uh, one of them, which I think probably everyone will have followed until now, is the the drama in the Spain camp. Well, not only has Luis Enrique returned as a Spain coach, but Roberto Moreno will not be staying on for to be his assistant. First of all, there's a few things I think we should we should establish about this. There's there's a lot of stuff being written about this that may or may not come from good sources, but hasn't come from the people themselves. So I'd like to stay away from too much speculation over like what might have happened. It's a very confusing situation because you see re- different reports coming from different directions all the time. Uh, and then some of the key p- people t- speaking out and some of the key people saying that they don't want to speak out. So yeah. it's very very difficult to actually know the situation in in fact 
exactly i mean so from my point of view and i'd like to hear your opinion on it my my personal my gut feeling is that luis enrique has every right to come back and finish the job that he started that was taken away from him by something that's absolutely tragic then after that you can question how everything else might have happened and, and how moreno was treated but at the same time moreno now is gonna he's left this job in an infinitely better position than he was before he took it with and he's gonna have way more coaching options than he did before it. am i naive to think that actually in the end both people will probably come out okay from this i think so but i also think that the, in general i don't think there is anyone who doubt not even moreno that luis enrique should get the job back moreno has said before that when when lucho is is ready to come back i'm, I'm happy to step aside and give him his his spot back if that's still the case for him now the there's different uh, facts and indications saying different things and, and we don't really know what sh- what to believe and what not to believe but I think in general I don't think anyone think that Luis Enrique coming back is wrong I think everyone agrees that that is what should happen and, and what he deserves I think that the question and where people where this has spun out of control is just how the situation have been handled that the uh, that the Rubiales is, is have to sit down and have a press conference for one and a half hour explaining how they made this decision uh, and how it came about and, and every detail of, of it uh, is just insane that that even needs to happen. And that just shows that the Spanish Football Federation, uh, that everything around it has been handled the wrong way. Yeah. Um, and that's where the problem lies. And I think we've seen too many mess, the Spanish Football Federation messing up too many times before that it's difficult to to think that they are the right <laughs> that they have done right in this situation uh, but we don't really know because we don't have all the facts we don't have all the all the sides of the story and and one you, for one, one second you feel really really bad for for Robert Moreno and you feel like okay they've been treating him the shit and then the next situation you're you're like not really sure did they though or was it actually done how it should be done or it's just a really messed up situation, which I think just sums up Spain in general, because that's how things work in this country. And I think you're right. It's part of a more general problem with how things are handled in delicate situations here. But one big question that, that maybe hasn't been spoken about yet, but I think will be interesting to consider in the future is I'm, I'm intrigued to see what happens now that they go their separate ways, whether Luis Enrique continues to be as, as good as he was when the two of them were together. Because the, the example of the comparison that I think is most relevant is Pep Guardiola and, and Tito Villanova. Pep, for me, did his best work when Tito Villanova was, was his assistant. And even though he's been excellent since, he's he's never quite reached the same heights that he reached at Barca. And often people talk about, oh, he had Messi or he had Xavi or Iniesta. But few people talk about, oh, he had an assistant there who was obviously very, very good at his job. So I'm intrigued to see if, if Luis Enrique can continue to perform at the same level without a guy that he's always had with him during the, the most important parts of his coaching journey. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting point. And if we take with Guardiola and Tito, as you say, I think very few people understand how important Tito Villanova was in, in that duo. Uh, Guardiola pointed it out himself a few times at the, at the end of it. Uh, but but yeah, and then you also have to think it's... Uh, but, but the question is also, is it as much as assistant coach or is it the entire training staff? Because there there is so many behind the scenes, behind the, the main guy that that we never talk about but have so key roles and and many coaches they they move around with the same training staffs wherever they go sometimes they they change some of them uh but i think that is a thing that is overlooked too many times it's just how important all these guys behind the scenes that we never talk about it's it's not just assistant but all of them uh the importance that they have in, in making a coach successful last piece in our national business 
Gareth Bale, funny as hell. I, I, what, what I just want to say about this entire thing, like you, you spin it out of control. This time, I actually think he did a funny thing. Like it, there is this joke about him, and he goes out and he, 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 he trolls the joke or, or what to say. I think he, he did brilliantly. And then just because it's Bale, had it been anyone else, I think the reaction would have been so much different. But just because it's Bale, they paint it up as him being. This guy who doesn't care about Real Madrid at all, and I think he actually really cares, and I think he knows a lot better Spanish than people say he does, and it's just about him being shy and yeah. Uh, as I said to my friend Semra Hunter, the great Semra Hunter of La Liga TV fame, uh, when this happened, that Bale has now gone up infinitely in my estimations as a fellow professional troll. I can appreciate <laughs> the good work that he's done. I mean, here's the thing. This guy has put up with crap after crap after crap, week after week after week after week. I mean, he's a human being. Do you expect him not to react? And also, I mean, the other thing I take away from this is it's actually so nice to see happy Gareth Bale again. I forgot what happy Gareth Bale looked like. Happy Gareth Bale who's playing football happily and doing the things that Gareth Bale can do when he's happy. So I don't know. I mean, the, the drama, the reaction, the, the, the level of drama and the reaction is no surprise for anyone who's familiar with Spain and also with how... The, the need to generate content from the Spanish football media during the international break as well. I mean, this story has kind of conveniently fallen into their lap. Shall we move on to the important things? You were at, I, yeah, I mean, undoubtedly the greatest derby and uh, below the top tier in Spanish football. It is amazing. So first off, I would say that, that for me, having been to not all of them, but several of the derbies in Spain, I would rank the student derby as being up there with the Sevilla derby. Oof. For me, there, there, is, there is no derby that comp can compete with the Sevilla derby like the Asturian derby can. And there is no derby that can compete with the Asturian derby uh, except for the Sevilla derby in Spain. Mm. Uh, that is my complete honest opinion. And I've been very lucky because I've been to, the f to three derbies uh, the last three years in Oviedo. Um, and that is before that they hadn't had a derby for 14 years, uh, mm. which I'll go into a little bit in, in a while to explain the magnitude of it. But if we take this derby that was on, on this weekend, uh, it was in Oviedo and it was a little bit different uh, than the two previous ones because both Sporting Gijón and Real Oviedo, they are so horrible uh, <laughs> that you can't really be much more horrible. Uh, this was a very cold weekend. It was the same weekend, actually the same day uh, as last year that they had the derby because Spain have done one thing well. They have decided to always have the student derby when it's international break, which I am very happy about. Because uh, because of TV and it's a game mm -hmm. a lot of people will watch. So it's a good time to do it. Uh, but so that means it was on the same day. Last year, I was in a T-shirt. This year, I was with layers and layers and I was freezing, holding my bear. And my bear was cold. So my fingers were like shaking because of it. So that's the difference as well. So it was cold, two really, really bad teams. It was on a Sunday at four o'clock, which is not a good time for Spanish people to go and watch football. Uh, so there was a lot of things going against it. And also Sporting Gijón decided not to send any fans, which I'm also going to go into detail with. With all that said, um, coming Derby Day, uh, still quite a few hours until match, the area around the stadium uh, where all the bars are, completely full. You can barely walk around because there's just people everywhere. Um, some of my friends were coming up to me saying that they couldn't find a parking spot. Normally, it's super easy to find a parking spot going to the game. There was none completely impossible and they have they have changed the hotel where the players are so the bus comes from a diff different direction but you have like hours until the bus is even gonna come people are standing along the street and they're sharing on every car every normal bus that comes by 
and they're having flares and, and everything. And the the bar where the, the Oviedo's biggest fan group has their own bar, uh, Sumacari, it's so full that you can't even reach the bar to order a beer. So people go to other bars, order beers and comes back. Uh, and it's just like everywhere and all the other be- bars are quite full as well. So it's a lot of people. And then when the bus finally comes, it's the, the flares and the singing, it's... Uh, it's quite an incredible experience. For me, the Derby last year is still the, one of the best experiences I've ever been to in my life. This year was not as good of obvious reasons, but it was was really, really good atmosphere. Uh, then you go to the game. It is one of the worst football matches I've seen. <laughs> and it's nil-nil. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it's a great TIFO ahead of the match. And uh, the, the supporters group, Sumakari, they're turning... I think 25 years old, uh, like two days later or something like that. So they did a really cool TIFO, which was basically a TIFO of uh, historic TIFOs that they've done before. But it was it was very cool and, and very great experience as always. Uh, raining a lot because it always rains in Oviedo. So uh, if you were not sitting under the roof, which some of my friends were not, uh, they were leaving the ground completely soaked. In, in the cold November of, of Oviedo. So that, that's a little bit how the derby was, was about. So even though the football sometimes isn't the best, it's definitely one worth going to. Um, and the reason why Sporting didn't have any fans, this is because you have a, this is a rivalry that is really big between the two clubs, but not just between the fans, between the clubs as well. So there's quite a lot of infection between mm-hmm. the clubs which if you take, uh, start with last year when Oviedo was playing away to Sporting in, in Gijón at Del Mulion, uh, the Oviedo fans felt they weren't treated very well, uh, which ended up with the club a day later or so. On midnight to the day Oviedo was turning 93 years old, they released a statement. It's like, I don't know if they did that on purpose, releasing it like at midnight, uh, where they're basically saying, coming up with all of these things that, that had been done against their fans and then just stating we're cutting all our ties to Sporting Gijón. So the, the club officially went out and did an official statement saying we're just cutting all our ties to the, this other club, which I think is quite a big thing. Uh, Sporting reacted with doing a statement of their own, just saying that everything Oviedo was saying was wrong and we did everything according to the law and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so I think that was a little bit in it still ahead of this derby, where there is two different versions of why Sporting didn't send any fans. There is a Sporting version was is the, that they felt the, the security measures were, weren't fair towards them um, and saying that they, they felt like uh, their fans weren't being treated, were not going to be treated uh, well if they, they were sending them, so they decided not to send them at all. Then there's the Oviedo version, which is saying that Sporting didn't even try to help up come up with a solution for the security, how it should be done. They didn't even want to discuss it because the real reason, according to Oviedo, is that Sporting just didn't have any fans to send. So that Oviedo had given them a certain amount of tickets and they had sold so few that it would be embarrassing for them to send so few. So they just decided to come up with another reason why they couldn't send their fans. And then to, to a little bit explain also the why this derby is, I guess, even more tension around it now than it used to be. Because this is, this is a derby that's always been around in Spain and always been one of the most heated ones until uh, a few, quite a few years ago now. In, in 2001, Oviedo were relegated from La Liga. They were eventually relegated to the second division. They were then relegated to the third and forced relegated to the fourth division because they couldn't pay their players. And I'm not going to go into all of these details. I'm just going to go into the details to explain the derby situation. 
So what happened was that Real Oviedo was basically as close as going out of business as any club can ever be. And in this situation, I think that in, in many, when it comes to many clubs, even though you have a huge rivalry, if you're from the same region, you would probably try to help out your, your club, your opposite club in some way. Uh, what happened was that Sporting did not in any way reach out a hand. What they did instead was that Sporting fans would go to this small, small grounds where Oviedo were playing, which was mud pitches in the middle of nowhere against local teams. And they would go there and laugh at Real Oviedo fans. Uh, it's like laugh at them that you're you're down here and no brotherhood or anything in, in that situation. Adding to that, it was a political situation where uh, in Asturias, they wanted to make sporting the team of Asturias because Oviedo was now so far down and basically gone, uh, counted away, that they wanted to make take away Gijón from sporting and just call it sporting and it would be the t- t- team of entire Asturias like Real Oviedo didn't exist. So it's like all of these things where Oviedo was already in a really bad situation is pouring salt to it even more. And they would, for 14 years, the derby wasn't, wouldn't be played more than Real Oviedo would occasionally play Sporting's B team. So when they got back up to professional football and we had a derby for the first time three seasons ago, just the first time in, in 14 years that they played each other, it was, I think... The, the entire derby situation has changed in that sense that for sporting a fast, I think it's still a normal derby. Like you have your emotions, your, it's your biggest rivalry, you hate them and all of these things, all the emotions that goes into to any football derby. I think for Real Oviedo fans, it's gone a little bit deeper than that because for them, there was quite a long period where I think a lot of them thought that their club will, would go out of existence, that they would never have this derby ever again. So every time this derby is played, for them, it's a little bit like saying, hey, you know what? We still exist. We're still here. Uh, we're still playing you. We can still beat you. And it's it's a little bit more than just being a derby. It's a be- about being alive. Uh, and for me, one of the coolest experiences that I've ever experienced was the first derby that I saw, which was three years ago. The first one in, in Oviedo, in Carlos Tatier for 14 years. And Oviedo were losing 1-0 off the first half, I think it was turn it around and win it 2-1. And you see the emotions of the people in the stadium. It's not just like a, a normal derby emotions. It's people crying. It's like, it's, it's not just that we're back. It's just not that we're alive. We're also being able to beat them. I'm doing a book about Real Oviedo, as some of you might know, and some of you might not. And that's why I, I'm quite invested in the story and knows quite a lot about it. Um, but one of the people I spoke to, which is the press officer of Real Oviedo, she told me that her biggest dream is for Real Oviedo to go up to La Liga and to Sporting to never do it because she will never she never want to watch another derby in her life because she can't handle it emotionally. Yeah, and it's easy to understand why by the description that you just given. It sounds like <laughs> a horrific experience for everyone involved, all sets of fans, yeah. even if you're a neutral. Well, I think it's it's cool to talk about this because also, I mean. There's a tendency to forget about the what goes on below La Liga in Spain because there's so much that happens in the top flight now that gets so much attention all over the world. But for me, some of the more interesting uh, rivalries and some of the more interesting teams and are in the second tier or even below now. And yeah, it's, it's nice to shine a spotlight on that. And I think I'm pretty sure that we'll come back to the subject later on in the season for various reasons. Also, I don't know if it's a coincidence that Every team that we're in some way invested in uh, this season seems to be doing horribly. Girona are doing horribly. Oviedo are doing horribly. Celta are doing horribly. So maybe it's best that we don't 
back any other football teams from now going forward. I, I, I think we have to stay away a little bit from Real Sociedad or it's going to turn yeah. back on them as well. Well, yeah, that's a very nice link, my professional friend. Uh, You're so welcome. Before we wrap up, we've got a couple of bits of business. The first one is the, probably the more intriguing game this weekend for us is Real Madrid against Real Sociedad because it looks like Martin Erdegaard is good to go, which is good news. And I think one thing we should point out, because maybe not a lot of people realize this or haven't, aren't aware of this, that this is a sort of first really that he'll be able to play against his parent club because Real Madrid until now have been so strong with those fear clauses as they call them which is you know the cheap way out of not being able to play against players that you already own who are at other clubs uh, I'm really excited about this game and you know I was thinking about it I was going to say my question was going to be to you is this uh, Real Sociedad and Real Madrid's biggest test of the season and then I was like no is this Real Madrid's biggest test of the season because Real Sociedad already have done really well in big games so far and well, with one exception being a derby, but I think those are always unique in themselves. I, I definitely agree. If we take Real Sociedad, we've seen them against Atletico Madrid, yeah. the game that I was at, for example, where they were just completely incredible. Uh, and they were like taking these big tests like it is it's nothing and just kept on like they've done. They actually played almost better in those games than when they played smaller teams, which you often see with bigger teams uh, doing. If we take Real Madrid, we I think... We have never, we haven't really seen anything from them this season. They've had a few matches where they won big, but it's been against the likes of Leganes. Uh, we haven't seen them in any tough match yet. And Real Sociedad, I think, is the most difficult match at the moment that you could probably play because you have Barcelona. It's not in, in that form. Of course, they have Messi, which makes it difficult. Uh, Atletico are maybe a little bit in a better situation, but they're still not the Atletico that we expect from them. I think Real Sociedad is probably the best informed team that we have in La Liga. And also an interesting thing here is that Real Sociedad likes playing at the Bernabeu. Mm. Uh, historically, they have some really good results there. If we take my one of my favorite La Liga players ever, Sabi Prieto, he made his debut at the Bernabeu when he was 20, scored a Panenka, and then scored a, another goal, which was brilliant. And then we had another match uh, where he scored a hat-trick. They were Real Sociedad won four something uh, I don't remember exactly the result 4-3 I think it was mm. and the first one was 4-1 so Real Sociedad knows from historic now it's completely different teams but historically I think it's a, a club and team that isn't as afraid of the Bernabeu as many other clubs are uh, and then coming there in the confidence that they are knowing that they are doing really well and also knowing that Real Madrid are not doing really well uh, I think it's going to be a huge test for Real Madrid and it's going to be a where they really need to step up and show where where they're actually at. And if they can't do that against Real Sociedad, then I think they are really in trouble this season. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it will be an intriguing uh, chance to see if either team can keep a bit of momentum going because Real Sociedad had this really good run, but then you have an international break and everything kind of stops for a while. So it's often the first game back after an international break is really important if you want to keep a run going, I think. Um, and then moving on to like the final game we're going to look at, which I think is... Intriguing because I don't think we actually had a chance. I can't remember the specifics of when the last time we spoke was, but I'm pretty sure we didn't have a chance to speak after Oscar Garcia's first char uh, game in charge of Celta. We, no, we, we we spoke about Oscar Garcia quite a lot lots before we actually knew if he had gotten the job or not, but we haven't actually spoken about it since he got the job. Exactly. So, I mean, my, my takeaway from his first game in charge in which he, he had barely any time to work with his players was that even then he produced what to me was a really intriguing tactical variation that caught Barca off guard and actually gave them problems, if not for the genius of Lionel Messi. So now he has had a couple of weeks to work with his players to start to really put his uh, principles in place. 
And I think Villarreal are a side that suits them in that regard because they're going to be pretty open. What do you expect from this game? Well, so to, to start with, I was very impressed with the first game, game at Camp Nou. Sure, it was they, they lost and with quite big numbers, but I think it's about the results. And what I find quite interesting was following on, on Twitter and seeing the reactions of Celta fans during the match. So after the the starting lineup, which I think everyone was surprised by, was mm. was released, the comments were like, this looks like uh, someone doing a, a FIFA lineup, uh, you know, where, where you let the computer decide your lineup and, and, and things like that. Five minutes into the game and all the comments were like, this is the change that we have been waiting for. This is some, like this is the football Celta should always play, and that's like five minutes of difference from the lineup coming up to to the players entering the pitch. It's like obviously it wasn't the perfect game from Celta. It's he had been there for three days, but I think you could see so big changes. And also, what I really liked was the fact that he dared in his first match to do so big changes in the lineup. I don't think it's the lineup we're going to see from him going forward, but I think it was, in many senses, the Celta needed a change. It needed players to realize that their spots uh, are up, could be up for question. Um, he put Denis Suarez on the bench, for example. Our Dane, Piona sister, got to play out of nowhere. Um, so, but so that is that was very interesting. And now he's gotten a lot more time. He's gotten time to to train with the team. And I, every video I've seen from training ground from from South that there has been the biggest smile on Oscar Garcia's face, uh, which I also take as a good uh, good indication, even if it's a small thing. Uh, but yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see what he's going to do and what Celta are going to do when they're playing Villarreal, which is if Barcelona isn't really the team they are going to win against, especially not after three days. But now having, in as we were talking about Real Sociedad and Real Madrid, that the international break might not be the best for them. I think the international break couldn't come in a better time for Celta de Vigo to just get a little bit of a preseason, you could almost say, in the middle of the season. Um, so I'm very intrigued to see what Oscar Garcia and, and his South are going to do against Villarreal. And I think, yes, from my experience of, of going into this game, I, I almost feel like Celta should be a little bit of favourites. But that might be taking it to be too far. But I'm I'm very excited to see where, where this is going to go. It's difficult to call. I agree. I think I really like the fact that he came in and said, OK, clean slate. Everyone gets to prove themselves. There's nobody who's above the the hardworking training now, so I'm going to play who I'm going to play, and then you have to earn your spot. And then the other thing that, that I think we said on paper that this Celta squad looked like a good match for Oscar Garcia, the fact that they were already able to put into play some pretty effective versions of his football within three days or so suggests to me that that is the case, that these are players who are well-equipped to play this style of play, probably better equipped to play this style of play than the style of play they were being asked to play before. And then on top of that, the other intriguing factor is that Santi Cazorla is on fire at the moment. And just to see him again is always a, a bonus because we never thought we'd be seeing him. But that remains to be seen and we'll have plenty to say about this next week where hopefully we'll be back at the same time as usual. You won't have to wait extra three or four days. I know that has kept you all up at night. I don't know about you, I've been receiving constant tweets saying, where's Bombathopod? And I'm like, I oh, know, man, I know, but... You know. My phone has been exploding, completely exploding. And on that note, we will bring an end to Bombatho for one week, mainly because my computer just froze and we lost the entire closing section that I was just about to use, or at least I think I did. So we'll close in a much more fitting uh, nature, which is that I will ask Alexander Jonsson to say goodbye to you in Norwegian. How do you say goodbye in Norwegian? Uh, yeah, I don't know. No, I, I think it's like... There you go. I don't know. Yep, there you go.